Okay, good morning, everybody. I kind of feel odd calling you to order. <laughs> I don't really have any authority to call you to order, but I'm doing it, all right? And Helen is going to come up and read for us. Helen? Ah, fantastic. She's going to be in Matthew chapter 6. She'll be reading the Lord's Prayer. Let me get out of your way here. Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Wait, is that right? Okay. <laughs> Are we starting? Uh, you know what? You, you only have to start up here. Okay. Verse 10. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we... Pray, Father, that uh, you would send your Holy Spirit now to do what we can't do. Um, we know that truth is something that's revealed by you, and we need you to do that. Uh, would you grant us the grace to receive it? In Christ's name, amen. So uh, my name is Randy, and uh, it's great to be with you, but it's also a little intimidating because I don't know a lot of you. And um, Brant, I have such a deep respect for his skills as a pastor, so to fill in for him, uh, is a little weighty, but uh, I just want to stop and say hey to everybody <laughs> that I do know. Um, but we're talking about prayer this morning, and I'm jumping in on this series that Brant has been doing, and um, we've been doing this same series over at our campus at Granny White, and we've been talking about really how dangerous it is for us to talk about prayer, because uh, there's a danger here that when we talk about prayer and you learn things about prayer, that you're going to think that's the same thing as having a vibrant, powerful prayer life. Because we're really educated people and we think if we know something about it, that's the same as experiencing something about it. But if you go to Ephesians, Paul actually prayed for us, the church, that God would open up the eyes of our heart, not the eyes of our mind, but he said, I, I pray that God would open the eyes of your heart that you would know the riches, the power, and the hope that is yours in Christ Jesus. And if we went around the room, we could talk about what does those three things mean, and we could probably all give good answers to what it means to be rich and have power and hope in Christ Jesus. But Paul wasn't praying that. Paul was saying, I pray that your life would experience what it's like to be rich in Jesus, to live a life of deep hope in Jesus, and be a person that actually knows power in your life because you know Jesus. Does that make sense? So at Granny White, they all talk back to me. So y'all are going to have to talk back to me a little bit, all right? So we're talking about prayer, and the thread is, is that what we're going to talk about this morning, you'll walk away here going, that, man, that was interesting. I love that illustration at the end. That was awesome. Or it could inspire you to dive into what it means to have a, a very vulnerable, vital, powerful prayer life as a part of your spiritual journey with Jesus. So Helen did a great job of reading, uh, but if you have like a King James Version or a new King James Version, you'll notice that the prayer doesn't stop there in your version. 
your prayer goes on to, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Have you all heard that part of the prayer? So let's talk about that because it's not in your NIV. It's not in your ESV. It's not even in the version that Helen read from. Where did this come from? Why is that last passage, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, why is that in some Bibles, but it's not in other Bibles? Well, we have to understand where we get this from. This, this is a book that has traveled through time for thousands of years. And the way that it has traveled through times is handwritten, hand-copied manuscripts uh, where somebody would handwrite or hand-copy a version of the book of John and then send it to another town. And as a result, we have manuscripts that have been written for thousands of years. Well, we don't have any that goes back all the way to the original, but... But we have about 5,800 manuscripts. And some of those manuscripts, we have yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And some we don't. And so there's a real debate about was this a part of Jesus' prayer or was it something that the Jewish community tagged on at the end of the prayer to kind of wrap it up? Like, you know how you do at dinner when you pray your prayer, just so everybody knows you're done, you say, amen. Like we just have kind of made that a part of our language. We don't know. We do know that if you ever want to study where Scripture came from and how we put together the canon, you are going to be amazed at the immense integrity and evidence that we have to the authenticity of the word that we have here. I encourage you to go down that road. But some believe that this doxology was added at the end. Now, what is a doxology? Well, a doxology, it's a Greek word that's made up of really two words. Daka and logos, and daka meaning glory or splendor or grandeur, and then logos meaning word. And so a doxology is words of glory uh, or words of uh, magnificent splendor, fantastic words. And we find these doxologies all throughout the Bible. And doxologies tend to have three parts to them. There's a piece of the past there's a doxology that's tied to the present, and there's a doxology that's actually tied to the future. So it's past, present, and future. Let me give you an example. If you go to Exodus chapter 15, this is the story of when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt. They were coming out of 400 years of slavery. Moses was leading them. He had a big beard. We know this because of the movies. And so... He's leading them out, and they get to the Red Sea, and they hear uh, Pharaoh's armies and chariots are coming after him because they changed their mind, and it's death, death to the Israelites, you know, and they're coming, and they're trapped between this massive army and this impenetrable Red Sea, and the Lord parts the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land, you know the story, and they get to the other side safe, but when they get to the other side, something happens. The, the waves come and crash onto the Egyptian army, and Moses burst into this doxology of song where he starts to say, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The Anybody grow up in the church? Horse and rider thrown into the sea. Like, you know, like he starts to sing the song. He says, look, look what you've done, Lord. And he's talking about the past. I just witnessed you protecting us and doing something so miraculous that now we're safe 
from an impossible situation. Look what you did. Then he moves in his song to look who you are. He says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who's like you, glorious in holiness? I see who you are. I saw what you did. I see who you are. And this is great because he says, and now when we look to the future by looking at the past, we are certain of the promises that are you making for us in the future. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountains of, their, of your inheritance. In the place, O Lord, which you have made, I proclaim it over my life. So this doxology, look what you did. Look who you are. Look what you promised to do. This doxology is words of glory to God over my past, over my present, and get this, over my future. I mean, it really shouldn't surprise us. You know, it shouldn't surprise us that there's this doxology right here, and it shouldn't surprise you, but you also have a doxology in your life. We all do. We all have a song that we're singing over our past. We all have a song that we're singing in the present, trust me. And believe me, we all have a doxology and a song that we're singing in the future. We have a song that we sing over our pain. We have a song that we're singing over our joy. We have a song that we're singing over our celebration, over our grief. Trust me, even when everything goes sideways, you have a doxology. I mean, my wife uh, graduated from LSU. Wow, okay, nobody. Okay. And every time they play Alabama. Okay, okay. see? See the doxology? It's there. Even when they lose, there is a doxology of grief in that loss that says something about the past, it says something about the present, and certainly something about the future. So go with me now. I'm going to make a statement that I, you, you're free to wrestle and disagree. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul is talking to the church and he says, pray uh, without ceasing, meaning pray all the time. I don't think he's trying to challenge us to do something we've never done before. I think he's making a statement about what's true about us, that you pray all the time. You're always praying. You're always praying to something. You're always praying to someone or you're always praying about something. Like I love, I want to give this quote to Anne Lamott, but uh, if she's in the room, she may not have said it, and I'm sorry. But I think she said, cussing is the lowest form of prayer. That even in my cussing, it's a prayer. I am praying constantly. And if you'll take that leap with me, I want you to take another leap with me. I think that you're doxologizing. I don't think that's a word. Okay, maybe a word. We're going to make it a word. Yep. Hey, my wife went to LSU. It's a word. Doxa. I know, she's not here. We're always doxologizing. See, let me try to explain this. You have memories of your past. You don't have the capacity to remember everything that's ever happened to you, uh, but you, you do remember things about your past. So why do you remember certain things and you don't remember other things? It could be that because your past in these events, you're having an emotional or traumatic experience which sticks out and you remember that. And so imagine that you've got all these memories from your past that you're remembering, 
But with those memories, now you're knitting them together and you're telling a story called you. You're telling the story of you. And guess what? The story that you're telling about your past, do you think it impacts your present? Oh, yes, it does. And do you think that how you're telling the story of your past in the present affects what you're thinking and saying about the future? We're all doxologizing. We're all looking for glory words to speak over our past, our present, and our future, even if those glory words are glory-less. In other words, words that are glory-less, meaning that we are, we are experiencing loss because we want glory words over our past, over our present, and certainly over our future. But if we have lost hope, riches, and power, those words become less than glory, but they're longing for glory. Okay. Stay with me. I'll be done in about an hour, I promise. <laughs> Let me give you an example. What was your family's doxology? Hmm. Do you know that your family had a doxology about sex? Your family had a doxology about money. Your family had a doxology about work, about conflict, about relationships. Your family had a doxology about emotions. Can I tell you, my family's, this one's fun. The doxology of my family when it came to emotions is there are no emotions that are worthy of your time, your energy, or your effort except for joy. Joy was the bully of all emotions. Like if you're angry, just get joyful. Like did you just look, lose a foot in an accident? Just be thankful. Be joyful. You know, no matter what happened, you know, did you work all year for that victory and you lost? Let's be joyful. Like, we could not experience anger. We couldn't experience sadness. We couldn't experience grief. We couldn't experience any of the things that make you human. All we could experience was joy. That was our doxology. And so here's what's crazy. In my family, if you were experiencing emotion other than the acceptable emotion of joy, and really it wasn't because my family was a joy monster, it was my family was absent and they didn't have time for any emotions other than everything is just great. Doxology over my emotions. But your family gave you a doxology about winning, about losing, about success? Like, what was your doxology about work? Or what was your family's doxology about your appearance? Oh. Did you weigh enough for mama? Did you weigh too much for mama? Did you look good for daddy? What was your family's doxology about value? What in your family really had value? So, um, okay, so I probably will never be back, so this is just, just exposure. My family's doxology about money was this. We didn't grow up with much money. We were kind of poor, and so our doxology was this. And remember, a doxology is what, what we, words of glory are glory-less, looking for glory over past, present, and future. Are you all with me? Yes, okay, a couple of you in the back said yes. You in the front, I get it. All right. Our doxology over money, never, there's never been enough. There's never going to be enough. Never enough. Never enough. And here's how we brought glory to that. People who had enough and too much weren't as good as people that didn't have enough. 
It's true. There, there was a shame that was cast at my dining room table nightly on people that had too much because they didn't know what it meant to really struggle like we do. And in the present, the present, that doxology of the past came into the present when, when we always are looking for the deal because there's never enough. And you know what it says about our future? Nothing but pure terror. Because if there wasn't enough then and there's not enough now, there's not going to be enough for the future. We're in big trouble. Fear was a common part of our life experience. And so I came to know this Jesus when I was like 17 and Jesus began to heal some things. I'll tell you a little bit of that in a second. But uh, I went to Warby Parker to get these glasses two weeks ago. And <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. That's what I need. It's my doxology on appearance. There we go. So I go in and I bring an old pair, like a really old pair of Warby Parkers that uh, I still like, but they were all bent out of shape, you know, from wrestling with kids and stuff. And uh, so I took them in and I said to her, hey, I'm getting a new pair today, but can you fix these? And she goes, whoo, those are old. I said, yeah, that's what I'm bringing you. She goes, I think they're going to break when I begin to adjust them. I said, no problem. If they break, just throw them in the trash can. Because if you can't fix them, I don't want them. She goes, okay, but you need to realize, she really said this, you need to realize I am not taking responsibility for these glasses. And I said, you need to realize I don't care. She goes, okay, so I'm looking around for these and I found them, or should I say they found me? And uh, she comes over to me and she goes, uh, I cracked them right there. And I couldn't even see it. I literally could not see it. I said, chunk them. And she goes, I'll be happy to discard the glasses for you. But I need you to know that Warby Parker is going to give you a free frame for me damaging your old frames. And I said, no, you won't. I said, I don't know. I said, I, I actually saved up money to buy these. I can afford it, all right? which meant HSA is going to pay for it, all right? I have insurance. I said, don't just throw them away. She goes, no, we are giving you a new set of frames. I said, really? Let me tell you something that will not shock you. They gave me these frames. I had to buy the lenses, but I got the frames for free. I've told that story three or four times. You would not believe what happened to me at Warby Parker. Why is that such a big deal to me? Oh, the doxology of my family. There's never enough in the present. You've got to get the deal. And in the future, I hope I can get more deals like that in the future. Otherwise, we're not going to make it. My family's doxology about sex. Do y'all talk about that here? Uh, <laughs> it was never talked about in the church I grew up in. Sex is dirty. It's unspeakable. It's a no-touch topic. God is embarrassed by it. That's why you never hear about it in church. And that's uh, something that we never, so it's, it's relegated to the shadows. Because in our past, there was shame with it. In the present, mm, and in the future, don't you ever talk about it. Can you imagine the kind of revelation that happened in my life when I became a Christian and I began to realize God invented sex. Are you kidding me? And he not only invented it, like the Lord loves this part of our lives. It was Satan who was trying to mess it up. It was Satan who was bringing shame and pushing it into the shadows and the corners. 
Like there was a rewiring of my family doxology for me to start to understand that this part of my life is a healthy, normal part of who I am as a human. Okay. Did I go too far? So it's not just my family that writes a doxology over my life. It's also, uh, like you, I have past traumas. I have experiences that are really painful. Those painful experiences are like these, these huge mile markers in our past that we remember. In fact, we remember them sometimes that they, they can have control over our present, and they also can have control over our view of the future. You know, we, we don't live the future. We live the present. But... Like one of my mentors used to say, if you're, it's kind of like if you're walking through the woods as a kid and you step on a snake and it bites you, um, and you go to the hospital and it's this traumatic, painful, near-death experience that for the rest of your life, when you walk through the woods, you're going to think that you see snakes everywhere. In fact, when you see a stick, you're going to jump back because you're going to think it's a snake because of the trauma that you've experienced. Because every trauma, every hurt, every abuse, every disappointment writes a doxology over our lives that we repeat even when they're not true. I'll give you an example. Five years ago, I sold my wife's car, and these guys came in, and I think I sold the car for $5,000, and so they brought in cash, and they're counting them out into stacks of 1,000s. And so we had five stacks there, and they were yucking it up, yucking it up, and doing things like, well, tell me about your church, you're a pastor, wow, that's amazing. And um, so we concluded the deal, I, they leave, and I scoop up the money, and I go to the bank, only to realize as one of them were walking out the door, they took one of the stacks. What do you do? I just got cheated out of $1,000. So this last year, I sold my truck, and I decided, not this time, pass. And what's the doxology? Give people a chance, they'll cheat you. So present, change the plan. I met them at the bank and said, count the money out to the teller. The future, I'll never be cheated again. I mean, it's smart to go to the bank, all right? I'm not saying that's not true. <laughs> But you know what's not smart is letting a trauma from the past control your present and create fear for you in the future. Hmm. You know, when we do that, something else begins to write a doxology in our lives. Um, I don't have time to talk about how shame writes a doxology in our lives. That, that deep sense in us that we're not enough. Um, we're not enough for longing, for belonging. We're not enough to be loved. We're not a, enough to be accepted. And we have a whole list of reasons why we're not enough. We're not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not successful enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not spiritual enough or funny enough or wealthy enough. That we let shame write this story in our past, which then comes into our present and explodes and our doxology becomes, I'm not enough. My glory-less words that are longing for glory that cast shadows onto my future. We're going to run out of time. But uh, let me just cut to the chase, all right? 
all these dexologies that we carry in our lives, Jesus, Jesus has come on a rescue mission to rescue you from your doxology into a glorious doxology. He, he has come to rescue from all the doxology that the past has spoken over to you, the broken ones that you're speaking into your present, and all the things that are shaping, all the things that you're thinking about for the future. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, it says, The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than anything that has ever happened in your life. That the work of Christ speaks greater than your past, it speaks greater than your present, and it speaks greater than anything you can imagine for the future. In fact, it doesn't just speak greater, it declares it. See, when Jesus went to the cross, and maybe you've heard this before, Brant, I'm sure has talked about Jesus, is that <laughs> when Jesus went to the cross, what did he take with him? He took all my sins with him. He took all my past sins, all my present sins, and even all my future sins went to the cross with Jesus. When Jesus declared me forgiven, it wasn't forgiven up to this point, but we'll see tomorrow. It is forgiven forever. He has thrown my sins as far as from the east is from the west. In fact, Paul said, where sin increases, grace increases even more, that you cannot outlive, you can't outsin the grace of God. That's how powerful God's grace is. And if the story stopped right there, that would be fine. But that's not where the story stops. That's only half of the story. The rest of the story is that Jesus rose from the dead. And in Romans chapter 6, it says, when he rose from the dead, guess what? I rose with him to newness of life. Not just to his newness of life, his newness of life in me. That a new life now dwells within me. And this is a life of power. It's a life of hope. And it's a life of unbelievable riches. And it speaks a better word than my family. It speaks a better word than my trauma. It speaks a better word than my shame. It just does. And here's the challenge of the Christian life. It's not me doing something. It's me believing what's been done. I've got to tell you that. That is the hardest thing for me, is to believe that I don't have to go get riches, that I have riches. Really? And so we spend a lot of our lives as Christians running around our lives looking for the car keys that are in our pocket. We already have them. We have possession of those things. So how do we grab a hold of these things? Well, do we do it through discipline? I don't know. <laughs> My discipline really struggles. Like, should we just start saying praise God after everything we say? You know, bring a new doxology in. You know, how you doing this morning? Praise God. I'm doing good. I know people like that. You know, you ask them, what do you want for lunch? I'll take a ham and cheese. Praise God. Like, just doxologize everything in the past, the present Dedication, maybe. Hard work, maybe. What if you memorize the whole Bible? What do you think about that? We could start a memorization club here. Let's do that. Tell Brent when he gets back. We started something new. It's not something we do first, but it's something that is done for us. Listen to John, and this is, John wrote the words of Jesus in John 17, this is starting in verse 20. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's talking to his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's talking about you. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you. 
May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And listen to what he says. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Wait a minute. Jesus is doxologizing us? That he is speaking words to glory to us? Listen to what it says in Isaiah 61 as it talks about the future, the church. It's prophesying about you. It says, God will bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. You will be called oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Look what the Lord is saying about you. That in this new life in Christ, you are crowns of beauty. He has given you the gift of joy and praise. And you're like a grove of oaks in righteousness for the display of his glory. Is this possible? Is it really possible that what heals us isn't finding a way to give God more glory, but to embrace the glory that he's poured on you? Is it really possible that us becoming these massive receivers of God's doxology over me so fills my cup that now what spills out of my life is a doxology to him? Is it possible that the gift of being loved so deeply and me allowing myself to be loved so deeply in my past, my present, and even my future is what spills out of me to be loving? Well, I want to um, show you a video. Um, so uh, if you don't like videos, I'm sorry. I'm showing it anyway. But I couldn't think of a better way to display to you that the gift of allowing God to sing over you is what's going to change your life. And it's going to change what you doxologize about your past, your present, and future. When you think about characters from the Old Testament that were thrown into slavery and then rose, who's Joseph, he rose to power. And when his brothers came in, he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That he was doxologing over the trauma of his past for the good of his present to the promises of God in the future. So the video that I want to show, this is a story of a father who had many sons. And one of them was born uh, with a severe handicap, cerebral palsy. He was unable to move. Um, he was unable to speak. Uh, but he was passionate about his son being a part of their family life and about his son experiencing life. And when his son, I think he was in his teen years, uh, he said to his son, I'm about to run a, a five-mile race for charity. Uh, why don't I push you in your wheelchair? Um, the son couldn't speak, so he did it. But at the end of the race, uh, his son was elated. In fact, um, was more vibrant and alive than he'd ever seen him. And so he began a journey of fighting for the vibrance and life of his son. And in their lifetime, they ran over a thousand races. And this is the video. And here's what I want you. I want you at the end of the video. It's just a split second. But I want you to take your eyes off the sun 
and I want you to look at the Father. At the end of the video, just it's a split second, okay? All right. You know, when you, uh, you see at the end, they cross the finish line, um, the Father takes a step back, and the glory falls on the Son. And you see, his, his eyes never left his Son. And to think about that our Savior, Jesus, takes us when we are broken, we're unfinished, we're messy, and yet he carries us through life and then brings us to the finish line and says, share in my glory, share in my glory, and we get to celebrate our glory in him over my past, over my present, over my future, his profound love for me when he found me when I wasn't looking for him, when he moved me when I could not move, when he healed me when I could not be healed, when he gave me life when I did not know what life was, when I did everything I could to mess up life and yet he brought life into that place and then said, now declare glory over your past. What the world meant for evil, I have meant for good and I am with you in the present. Do not be afraid of the future. When we get our cup so full, then we can say, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power and yours is the glory forever and ever. That's our Jesus. It says in Zephaniah, he rejoices over you with singing. He's, he describes us with our hands limp and our heads down and the writer says, lift your head. Do you not hear the song that's being sung over you? And church, that's what worship is. When we begin to hear the song that is being sung over us, we need that prompting because then we join in the music and we return the glory that he is pouring out on us. So I don't know where you are this morning. You may be tired. If you're a parent, you are. But I wanted you to be encouraged that Jesus never asks from you something that he doesn't fill your pockets with first. And when he fills your pockets, he says, now return it and it will come back to you a hundredfold. So church, let us be people of prayer. Let us doxologize in prayer over our past. And sometimes we need each other to do that, to do it in our present. And let us then back up and let the future be behind us with our eyes on God's faithfulness for the past, not afraid of what's coming. Lord, I pray uh, and praise you. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. For Lord, you have taken us across the finish line. You say the victory is ours in you, Jesus. That you glory over us and fill us with your love and your kindness and your mercy, with your riches with your hope and with your power. And I pray, Father, for my friends now that, Lord, um, we would have courage because of that doxology to not be afraid of our past, to even to take some of the doxologies that are being said to us and have been said over us for years and do the hard work in community to change those words, to hear your song sung over us and let us start a new song today. In Christ's name we pray, amen.